The Abounding Joy of New Testament Hope, Part 8. We're going to start today looking at the fruit of hope. The first one we're going to look at is joy. The text is Romans chapter 12, 10 to 13. Silence your phones, everybody, please. Take it out, look at it. Romans 12, 10 to 13. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And there's this phrase, rejoice in hope. This is a series on hope. The abounding joy of New Testament hope. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. We want to uh, come to your word with, with the kind of humility that doesn't assume you don't have something to say to us or that we have this mastered or that this should be for someone else, for me, for each one of us. Come Holy Spirit and take the words of this, of this God-breathed text and carve into our lives all that you would for the fruits of hope and this morning joy. Bless us as we study together. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we launch into a kind of a new section of our study on biblical hope. We've looked at the importance of hope, first of all, in a couple of messages, how it fuels both faith and holiness. That's where we started out. And then we looked at the sources of hope, the grace of God, the body of Christ, and the encouragement of the scriptures, the sources of hope. And then we studied some of the objects of our hope, the second coming of Jesus, the redemption of the body, the hope of righteousness in the age to come. We looked at those one each week, and now we're going to start looking at the fruit of hope. So, so the question will be, what does hope produce in our lives? Picture a tree. That's a, uh, I mean, the Bible's full of that particular image, a tree. And you see the roots going down into the sources of hope, those three sources that we studied and the branches being the objects, what we're hoping for. What we're looking at now is what grows on those branches. Does the hope in our hearts make any difference in the way we live? Does biblical hope produce fruit? And if it does, what fruit? And the New Testament answers the first question, does Biblical hope produce fruit. It answers that question with a resounding yes. And we're going to look at four fruits of hope. Joy, love, boldness, and endurance. And each one of those is specifically tied repeatedly to hope in the New Testament. Let me, let me try and say it another way. Without hope, 
I will never possess joy, love, boldness, or endurance as graces of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's a kind of joy you can have without Christ. There's a kind of love you can have without Christ. There is a boldness you can have without Christ. Think of all sorts of people in the media. There's an endurance you can have that comes just from tenacity and stubbornness. All of those traits can be summoned to a degree just by a strong will and sheer discipline, but but those aren't produced directly by the Holy Spirit. They're not spiritual graces. There's nothing distinctly Christian about them. They're just human characteristics residing in the human will and nothing particularly glorifying to God in them. Natural man can find a certain joy in material goods. We all find a certain joy in good health. People can easily express love when they find themselves in a family relationship or a state of romance. People who don't know Jesus at all can endure hardship just out of sheer toughness of will and character. But that's not what we're looking at. That's why when we study each of these four fruits of hope, I want to show each one in a distinctly scriptural, Christian, spiritual light. We're looking at spiritual fruit that that stems from the promise of God's word that are enlivened by the Holy Spirit and that bring glory to God as their ultimate goal. That's what we're studying. The phrase we're going to examine in detail is found in that 12th verse of the text I read. Rejoice, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. One translation says, let your joy be the joy that comes from hope. So that makes it clear that we're talking about a specific kind of joy, not just sort of happiness. Now most of us know that that great 12th chapter of Romans, the way it reads, we've been studying it in detail on Sunday nights. So the whole chapter is, is an expansion of the two themes that get nailed down in the first two verses of Romans 12. A chapter about worshiping God with renewed minds and obedient bodies. And it's a chapter about constantly pressing back the encouraging Tendencies to worldliness with its ways of life not not conformed to this world. That's what Romans 12 is, is all about. And then after those first two verses, I mean the rest of the chapter spells out the details of those two themes. What it looks like when a, when a mind is renewed and a body offered in worship. What it looks like when we are not conformed to the penetrating influence of the world around us. There's lots of points to develop, and none of them is very easy to do for people like us. And that's why right in the middle of all those instruction verses, you have this little gem in the 12th verse of Romans 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. 
So that whole chapter, Romans 12, when you read it, it gives us a lot to do. And it takes diligence, and it takes perseverance, and I think Paul knows we will never make it without learning how to rejoice in hope. Verse 12. Joy is, is the fuel that leads to endurance. Joy keeps us on our knees in constant prayer. Joy helps us to be patient in tribulation. All that is in that 12th verse. So today, I want to ask and hopefully answer four questions. Four questions concerning this joy. What is Christian joy? What is unique about Christian joy? How can the scriptures command this kind of joy? And then how can we obey that command? Hopefully we'll get through all four of them. First question, point number one. What is Christian joy? Here's my definition. Christian joy is an overwhelming delight in the grace and presence of God through Christ that keeps looking forward to its final fulfillment when Jesus comes again and faith becomes sight. So I give, like, it's the longest definition in the world, but... This seems to be generally the pattern throughout the New Testament. Here's a text I want to look at. I'll get it on three slides because it's a longer text. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to, to a living hope. This is a series about hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. Next slide. Who by God's power are being guided, guarded, sorry, through faith for a salvation to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice. We're looking at the fruit of joy. The this, if I had this on one slide, would point back to the hope. The living hope. That's what he's talking about. That hope. In that hope, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So this joy isn't pretending that life is easy. Seven. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, that, that's that future element. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so here, here we see Peter describing that same process that Paul talked about in our Romans text, if you can keep that in your mind. 12.12, where he talks about rejoicing in hope, or having the joy that comes from hope. And then here, Peter talks about joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 
1 Peter 1.8, if you pulled it out of that passage we read. So, so that's what this joy that comes from hope is like. It's not just some doctrinal understanding. It's not, it's not just theological. It isn't some kind of detached knowledge. And this joy that comes from hope, it isn't just a decision to tough it out, keep the chin up. No way. I mean, you notice those words, joy, inexpressible. Peter says, filled with glory. Filled with glory. What does that mean? I mean, I think those last three words are really important. When, when, when Peter says that this joy that comes from hope, that it's filled with glory, we might think that he just means that it's really, 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 really nice joy. But Peter isn't using that word glory just to describe the degree of joy. He's using it more to describe the, the, the kind of joy, the nature of the, not just the degree, but the nature of the joy. And when you read those verses that we just read in 1 Peter, you realize that this joy is, is filled with glory in this, in this sense. The joy that comes from hope is filled with glory because of the object of the joy. The object of the joy is a glorious object rather than merely an earthly object. It's way more precious than gold that perishes. The object of this joy is glorious, divine. So this joy is is full of glory, stuffed with glory like you just did at Thanksgiving, stuffing the turkey. It's stuffed with glory because it's a joy that's rooted in a glorious hope and a glorious God and a glorious future that can't be taken away. It doesn't fade. It's incorruptible. It can't perish. That's where the glory of this joy comes from. It's all about the glory that we have experienced and that we will still experience in deeper and fuller ways in in the future. So in other words, what makes this joy glorious is it's rooted in a glorious future with God. There is no other hope that can produce that kind of joy because there is no other hope that has that as its object. First chapter of Peter is the place where Peter ties joy most tightly to hope. It's seen as the fruit of hope over and over again. Let me just show you a couple of them. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this is where my hope for eternal life comes from. This is my hope for my resurrection, my eternal life with him. Look at the very next verse, 1 Peter 1, 4, or 1 Peter 3, 4, sorry. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, 
kept in heaven for you. So this gives me confidence that this joy coming from that hope is a certain joy. It's not going to evaporate. It's not going to disappear. My health might, but this won't. My finances might, but this won't. All earthly relationships come to an end, but this won't. Anchor here is what Peter is saying. First Peter 3, 5. Who by God's power are being guided through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So whatever joy I experience now in knowing Jesus, it, it is still small. I dare say that. The joy I have in knowing Jesus, however wonderful it is, it is still small compared to the wonder of salvation still to be unfolded on my behalf. It's, it's never going to get smaller than it is now. It's only doing this. See, it's the opposite of all earthly hopes and joys that start out like this and they, they all do this. That's the thing that Peter's writing about here. Last one, look at verse 7. They get the same idea again. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right. No wonder Paul says, rejoice with the joy that comes from hope. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice with the joy that comes from hope. It's a very plain, somewhat hard-to-digest truth for an age and a people who just look to Christ sometimes just for comfort, just for bliss, freedom from trial, freedom from pain. And the Scriptures usually take quite a different approach. God's Word says, don't anchor, don't anchor your boat to earthly joy. It's just too fleeting. It's too transitory. You, you need hope if you're going to have deep joy. And this world and the things of this world can't give you that hope. So set your affection, Paul says, set your affection on things above. That's, that's another way of saying rejoice with the joy that comes from that hope. I said we were going to look at the distinctly Christian grace of joy. We're going to analyze what makes Christian joy so unique and transcending. And this is it. This is the only joy that brings glory to God. All human beings rejoice in good health. All human beings rejoice in prosperity. Everyone rejoices with a happy home and a good marriage. There's absolutely nothing distinctly God-glorifying in those joys. Everyone shares them. Which leads to our second question, question number two. What is unique about Christian joy? My answer is, it's a joy that is undiminished by the changing trials and circumstances of life in this fallen world. It just seems to me this is an unavoidable definition of joy in the Scriptures, and it, and it makes sense. Because Christian joy is anchored and focused on the hope that we have, it, it transcends, it doesn't erase 
but it transcends all the fluctuations of this world in which we live. Scriptures, I tried to put these four on one, well, I didn't. Someone tried to, at my request, put these four slides on one, so it might be a little crowded, but I think you'll be able to see what we're doing. Here's four texts with this, this same idea. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, that list. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word, look at this, received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's strange. 2 Corinthians 8.2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 2 Corinthians 6.10, Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There's, there's two kinds of joy in the scriptures. I shouldn't do this. There's two kinds of joy in the scriptures. There's joy that comes in sequence to sorrow. Weeping lasts for a night. Joy comes in the morning. First, second. The Bible talks about that kind of joy. There's another kind of joy that's talked about, and that is sorrowing and rejoicing, not in sequence, but at the very same time. That's what all four of those texts were talking about. There's sorrow, there's trial. You don't have to pretend it's not there. You can't just confess your way out of it, but you can still have joy. Sorrow, but with joy. And so we learn an important truth from those four verses. Sometimes even deep sorrow comes, but there's still a unique feature about Christian joy because it has its roots in in hope that's unerasable. It can survive in soil like a, in sorrow, like a fish can live underwater. I'm going to jump to point three. I say that because I'm leaving some stuff out and it helps those people up there who are thinking, what in the world is he doing? Point number three, the question I want to look at now. How can the scriptures command joy? That, to me, is a really good question. Because there's no question that joy is commanded. Look at these texts. Rejoice and be glad. There's the command. Great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice always. Not a suggestion. Command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Command. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Command. I mean, surely verses like that, they pose a kind of obvious question. How can you command joy? How can God command joy? something that really only he by his Holy Spirit can produce in my heart. Does this make sense? Life can be hard. When I was a kid, my mom sometimes made things that, that we didn't want to eat, the four Horbin boys. And this is a vivid memory, a vivid memory, where you, the, some wretched green <laughs> broccoli 
on the plate. And my dad always sided with mom. And he would sit and watch us grimacing at this. And uh, I don't think he read a lot of modern parenting books. He did not have time for one of those, you're going to stay at the table until you finish that speeches, because that just took too long for everybody. My dad never did the, I'm going to count to three. He didn't have time for that either. Why, why teach him not to listen for the first two, you know? Remember, clear as a bell, because I sat next to dad. Paul, Peter, mom, dad, Ed, Dawn next to dad. And he would look at me and in a, in, a, in a voice that wasn't loud, but had a definite tone. And his finger would point at me. And he would say, you're going to eat that, and you're going to like it. Is that what God's doing here, commanding joy? You're going to go through this, and, and, and you're going to rejoice. Is that what God's doing when he commands us to rejoice? Or, or is there something deeper and, and more loving going on in those verses that we just read together? Yes, God commands joy. Here's what I want to say. He commands it in just the same way that he commands us to be born again and receive a new heart. Look at these words from the prophet Ezekiel. I'm reading through the whole Bible this year, and I'm in Ezekiel. Tough book. Ezekiel 18, 30 and 32. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways declares the Lord. Here's the command. Repent. Turn from all your transgressions. Lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. Command. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. A command. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and and live. Or John 3, 7, you must be born again. How can, how can God command something only he can perform? And it's really quite simple. Because of God's great love and grace and faithfulness, he knows that the only thing standing between his command for joy, my joy, the only thing standing in the way is my own stubborn, idolatrous, distracted, wayward heart. And he knows that there is full provision made for all of us in this room to be partakers of his joy because of his grace. But like in the reception of salvation, the command to repent, there has to be a turning from self-will, self-fulfillment, Securing our lives on our own terms, self-satisfaction, self-rule. Only God can make that change. In other words, I can't make the wind blow, but by his prevenient grace in my heart, I can put the sail up. 
I can make room in my life for the Holy Spirit. I can renounce idols. I can study to set my affection on things above. I can learn what those things are. I can develop a taste for them. I can pray. I can learn to seek the true glory of God himself. It's a deep theological truth, but we used to sing about it a long time ago in little simple songs. Do you remember we'd sing, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in, in the light of his, his glory. Focus there and grace. i got to wrap up. Question number four. How should we obey the command to rejoice? Here are my closing three thoughts. A. Start, start by intentionally renouncing many of the things of this world. Tell yourself that there is no permanent joy to be found there. Remind yourself regularly that the world and its lusts, the old translation, desires, some of the newer translations, they're passing away. Intentionally renounce the things of this world. There are people, I made that comment before, I, I, I wasn't planning to, but this is not a poor church. Just go out and look at the cars in the parking lot sometime. And I said, there's, there's numbers of people who could take one of those projects and just write out a check. And, and, of course, that, that's entirely up to you. If you did, what you probably might not realize is that you weren't just doing it for that project. What you were doing is you were, you were setting your soul more and more free from covetousness. You were, you were exercising self-denial. You were, you were learning to set your affection on the glory of God in the reaching of the world. Start there. Intentionally renounce the things of this world. B, build your life around service to God and his kingdom. You you can't just tell yourself that God is important. That won't work. Train your life to make the kingdom of God important with your time and service. Don't get so busy with everything else that God gets squeezed out of your life. Delete other wonderful things first so that you can train your whole being to learning that God matters more than those other things. C. Spend enough time with God each day so that he can take your thoughts and, and gradually morph them into not just thoughts, but affections. That's why that Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. I, I'm not sure that you can rejoice in hope by sheer willpower. I'm quite sure you can't. Joy is given by the Holy Spirit, and that's why Paul links together. He links together rejoice and hope with being constant at prayer. 
I'm not sure that the enemy minds so much seeing Christians read their Bible. I think what he really hates is seeing them read their Bible and then pray over what they've read so it has a chance to move from into the heart. There's the first fruit of hope, joy. Not the kind of joy the world can give. Joy is the fruit of hope in the future that's set before us. Let's pray.